Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and in this Future Gazing podcast series, we consider speculative scenarios and provocative prophecies. The idea is that thinking about possible futures can give us a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. Today we'll be asking, could 2019 be the year that space tourism finally takes off? If you're serious about making billions of dollars a year in space tourism, you would have to build somewhere for people to go. And is there a way to save indigenous languages from dying out? Some experts estimate that out of the close to 7,000 languages in the world, around 40% could disappear by the end of the century. But first, on a previous episode of The World Ahead, we spoke about more environmentally friendly alternatives to meat, and I got to try some edible insects. So I've got this sort of salad here, and it's got spring onion, a bit yeah. of chilli, mm. um, yeah. a bit of red onion, yeah. and then it's got these bugs, and peanuts. And so you've yeah. got this lovely mixture of, um, of crunchiness, mm. and then the, uh, the freshness and the spiciness of the chilli. It's, uh, it's a really good combination. But recently, plant-based meat substitutes seem to have really taken off. The stock market flotation of Beyond Meat, the maker of the Beyond Burger, and other kinds of plant-based meat, was the best-performing IPO in America since the dot-com boom, with its shares rising by 163% on the first day of trading. And meanwhile, Impossible Foods, maker of the Impossible Burger, has done a deal to roll it out at Burger King restaurants across America. A patty with zero milligrams of cholesterol, 17 grams of protein, 100% Whopper, and 0% beef. We know it's impossible to believe. The Impossible Whopper, only at Burger King in St. Louis. Impossible's also getting ready for an IPO. So what explains this sudden appetite among both consumers and investors for these new meat substitutes? And how does it all fit into wider global patterns of meat consumption? To discuss this, I'm joined by Joel Budd, The Economist's social policy editor. Welcome, Joel. Thank you. Well, let's start with these plant-based burgers. Veggie burgers have been around for ages. So why do you think they're catching on now? Well, I think for two reasons. First of all, these plant-based burgers are better than they used to be. They're less sort of nutty like the veggie burgers that we remember from 20 years ago. And I think the other thing that has happened is that uh, people who eat meat are possibly a little bit more interested than they were in the environmental consequences of what they're eating and in the health effects of what they're eating. So they might be trying to substitute occasionally something else for their sort of meat uh, kind of food. Okay, well, I'm actually exactly one of those consumers. So I do eat meat because you don't. You're vegetarian, right? Yes, I've been a vegetarian since I was 10. So you presumably haven't tried these burgers because you're not interested in something that like does an imitation of something you don't like in the first place. Yes, exactly. It strikes me as a rather weird thing to want to eat if you're a vegetarian. How many people are like me, as it were? And how many people are like you, Joel? I mean, is the number of vegetarians going up? No, the number of vegetarians is absolutely flat. Vegetarian societies occasionally say that it's going up, but we have pretty good polling number from Gallup in America, for example, and it's about 5% of the population is vegetarian. 
has been vegetarian for quite a long time. It's simply not rising. So if there is a change, it's going to be among meat eaters, not among vegetarians. Right. So these are sometimes called flexitarians. And I guess that means I am one. I'm sort of, you know, trying to eat a bit less meat. But if I can eat a bit less meat and still feel like I'm eating meat, then I'll totally do it. And uh, to see exactly how effective this is, in fact, we have the the Beyond Burger here and uh, an ordinary burger. So I'm going to put them side by side and see what I think. We haven't had to do any sort of complicated logistics to get this. We literally got this round the corner at Honest Burgers, which happens to serve these burgers alongside the traditional meat variety. So let me um, see. I don't know which one this is, but there's a burger. Looks like a burger. Yes. So there is a burger place on every other street in London, it seems. It's, it's, it's been one of the great booms in the last few years. Right. So this growth of the sort of high-end fancy burger place as a cheaper alternative to like a proper restaurant, but a fancier alternative to McDonald's is also a factor in why this sort of burger might be suddenly much more popular. Yes, exactly. They're quite high margin because the restaurants can get many more sittings than they can from a, from other sorts of food. Right. Now, this looks, okay, like, let's a, see what this you looks think. like a meat burger to me. So let's see. Yep, that looks like meat. <laughs> so that's obviously the meat one then. Um, let's see what this one is. So this is what Beyond Meat is trying to do. They're trying to convince people like yep. you that <laughs> that this is similar to what you like now already. This, okay, I can see this is does look like the. Uh, you can see it doesn't. The texture isn't quite right there on the side. But let's see what it's like. Oh, it's pretty convincing inside though. Look at that. It does look like meat, and I have to say, I really can't tell the difference on the taste. Yeah, it's got this kind of um, pink texture inside, like meat does. I mean, I'm not really that fussed about the. The way it looks, it's the taste. And this is in a cheeseburger. And I think that probably helps it as well. Because a, sure. a lot of what you're tasting in a cheeseburger is the sweetness of the bun, the, the cheese and, and so on. But that is that is really impressive. I mean, in the dark, you'd never know. Mm. <laughs> OK, so how smug should people like me be feeling that, oh, look, I'm helping the environment? Do we actually know if these burgers are better health-wise or environment-wise than the meat versions? Well, they, they're not vastly better at the moment, partly because there are very few companies producing these things and they don't have much scale. So they have very, there are very few sites where they're creating them. So as a result, they're having to move them quite long distances. And they also, just from a health point of view, they have quite a lot of fat in. But uh, I suppose the hope is that uh, if they really do catch on, then they would sort of scale up and they would become, you know, much more environmentally sort of friendly than beef. Now, what's the global picture here? Because here we are talking about potential shifts in the West. But would that have a global impact given, you know, the the overall size of the, the livestock industry and meat production? Well, it, it doesn't look like it would. Broadly, what's happening globally is that people are eating more meat. So in the West, we've kind of topped out, it seems like. We're not eating less meat, but we're also not eating more. But across the middle-income world and the poor world, people are just eating more meat as they become wealthier. So I think global meat consumption is is rising by about 2% a year, and global population growth is about 1% a year. Okay, so the fact that a few Westerners might be eating a bit less meat is more than offset by the fact that a lot of people in the developing world are eating more meat. So what does that mean for the environmental footprint of meat? What can be done about minimising the environmental impact of that increase in consumption? Yes, I think it's a little bit like self-driving cars. When self-driving cars became a serious proposition, some cities said, okay, we no longer need to think about public transport. That's really the wrong approach. I think sort of just because we have better vegetarian burgers 
does not mean we can't think about how to make meat production better. Really, the thing is that, particularly in Africa, meat production is just incredibly inefficient, and also milk production. So there are loads and loads and loads of cows, and fairly soon Africa will have the largest sort of cattle herds in the world. There are loads of cows, and they're producing very little milk and very little meat, and, and really we just need to make them much, much, much more productive. In the same way that we had a green revolution in the 1960s, which in particular made rice production much, much more efficient in Asia, we now need a pink revolution, which would make meat production far more efficient. OK, well, thank you very much for discussing this meaty topic with me, Joe. Thank you. Next up, the future of tourism, but in space. In 2001, Dennis Tito, a wealthy American businessman, became the first space tourist when he travelled to the International Space Station. But since then, only six more tourists have made the journey off Earth. But could space tourism finally be about to take off? Private aerospace companies such as Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic and Elon Musk's SpaceX all say that tourism is coming. To discuss whether this is another false dawn or if space travel could ever be a possibility for people who aren't millionaires or indeed billionaires, I'm joined by Oliver Morton, The Economist briefings editor and our expert on all things space-related. Hello, Ollie. Hi, Tom. OK, so what's the state of play? I think the company most people have heard of here is Virgin Galactic, and they've been saying that they're going to do space tourism real soon now for what seems like about 10 years. So are they actually any closer to the, the starting line? Uh, it's coming real soon now, Tom. They are getting closer to the line, and you know, they have a perfectly reasonable offer, which is that they have uh, a little plane, Spaceship Two, that would take people up above the well above most of the atmosphere, give them a bit of free fall, give them a very lovely view... The question of when they'll actually start doing it, I mean, I think for sunk costs, if no other reason, they are going to do it. It will depend on how quickly they can really qualify that spacecraft to fly. The question of whether they'll be first, though, is not quite clear because a couple of weeks ago, Jeff Bezos, who owns in his own back pocket the launch company Blue Origin, said that their suborbital launcher, New Shepard, would carry humans into space sometime this year. Right. So initially, presumably that will be test pilots, but that would give him the option to put tourists or basically non-astronauts, just people who are doing it for fun, in space in the next few months. So he could potentially beat Virgin Galactic to this. I think that's possible, yes. I mean, which one will do it with paying customers first? I don't know. When you say test pilots, I wouldn't be absolutely entirely surprised if Bezos was on the first flight of New Shepard. I would not think any the less of him if he were or he weren't, but it wouldn't entirely surprise me. But the Blue Shepherd capsule, it's not a, it doesn't look, I mean, it's not elegant like, uh, like the Virgin Galactic spacecraft, but it's got very big windows. And there's something very appealing, I would have thought, about very big windows when you're floating around for a few minutes in space. Make sure that everyone can get a view. That brings us to SpaceX, who we're familiar with as a company that launches things into orbit. They launch things to the space station for NASA, and they launch other satellites for other people. They haven't launched people into orbit yet, but that does seem to be getting closer. Where's their position on um, on tourism? They have no sort of like settled position on tourism. They have so they have this spacecraft called Crew Dragon, which is to take people up to the International Space Station. 
And we're not quite sure what's going on with that at the moment because one of the uh, one of the test articles had a, some sort of accident at the uh, Kennedy Space Center a month or so ago, and no one knows quite what the schedule now is for trying that out with people on it. Their crewed spacecraft has flown to the space station, but without a crew on it. And so I think you're definitely going to see that used a few times for other things first. But Mr. Musk does have a contract with a Japanese fashion billionaire, Mr. Maizawa, to launch him and some like-minded artist friends not to the surface of the moon, but in orbit around the moon. And in theory, when it was announced, it was said that that would take place in 2023. I think anyone with a sense of Mr. Musk's attitude to deadlines will know that that's probably not going to take place in 2023. OK, and then what about, you talked about how you only get a few minutes if you go up on a, on a Virgin Galactic or a Blue Origin craft. How could you get a bit longer in space? How would you... Uh prolong the experience? Well, a, a Crew Dragon could stay in orbit, I think, for a few days and without any other support. But that's a bit like going to a hotel and then just, you know, sort of like being in the lift all the time. Actually, it's like being a, going to a hotel and being in a lift that's falling free down the shaft all the time because Crew Dragon's not noted for its windows and not much point of that. So I think if you're serious about making billions of dollars a year in space tourism you would have to build somewhere for people to go. Is anyone um, doing that? No one, as far as I know, is doing that as an, as an all-out project at the moment. But there's a Las Vegas-based company called Bigelow, which has looked into building inflatable habitats in space and offers them to NASA on, on a regular basis and might conceivably be part of a NASA plan to go back to the moon using a small space station near the moon called the Lunar Gateway. If you can build relatively cheap, relatively large inflatable space stations, then that might give you somewhere to go with a view and whatever else you might need. And what about the moon itself as a tourist destination? I mean, obviously, the moon is is suddenly back on the agenda this year with the 50th anniversary of, of Apollo 11 and various probes going to it and, and so on. What about tourism? That's a long shot. But I must say, when people talk about the economics of moon settlement, it does seem to me that they tend to talk about mining the moon for various things. And I suppose that could conceivably happen. It seems to me, though, that the moon is probably better suited as a site of um, consumption than of extraction. So if there was a space-based economy, sort of like remotely the size of the one that Mr. Bezos thinks is is probable or desirable with millions of people working in space, the moon would be an obvious holiday destination for people who were working in space as well as people on the Earth because it's got landscapes. You can actually get quite large spaces in it without having to inflate them because you can dig holes and build in them. It's got views and it's particularly, it's got the view of the earth, which I think might be very important. It was often said that it was the most important thing to come back from Apollo was the view of the earth. And to be able to relax in your infinity pool built into the ramparts of the uh, of the walled plain Plato looking south over Murray Imbrium with the earth stuck like a huge moon in the sky. I can see that people who spend millions of dollars on holidays might choose to do that. You'd make a very good travel agent, that sounds lovely. And if you could go anywhere in the solar system as a tourist, where would you choose? Right now I think I might choose the moon because I, what I would like to do most would be look up at the earth 
sitting still in the sky but turning, waxing and waning from crescent to gibbous to full. I think that would be a wonderful thing to see. I think that would be great. I'd also like to see the rings of Saturn. <laughs> Excellent. Oliver Morton, thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. And finally, the United Nations has designated 2019 as the International Year of Indigenous Languages to highlight the peril many languages are now facing. To discuss what countries are doing to preserve languages for future generations, I'm joined by Melissa Haykiller, who wrote about it for the world in 2019, and by Lane Green, the Economist's language columnist. Melissa, let's start with you. How bad are things and is it getting worse? Oh, it's definitely very grim. Some experts estimate that out of the close to 7,000 languages in the world, around 40% could disappear by the end of the century. And unless we teach younger people how to speak these languages, they might grow extinct altogether. So what sorts of things are being done as part of this year of Indigenous languages? There's several. For example, there's a Gaelic music festival in Scotland. Canada is aiming to push a bill that would support Indigenous languages by November. And obviously there's also funding for new technologies to preserve and support languages all over the world. Lane, what sorts of things can technology do to help here? Well, they can do a lot for linguists. We can save the knowledge about the languages by collating uh, dictionaries. We can make grammars of the languages. We can make recordings of the speakers so that if the worst should happen, we'll know about the language. We'll have a record of it forever because if someone dies and we don't have that, then it's just gone forever without a trace. We can keep those traces and that's valuable in and of itself because linguists need to know what the possibilities for human language are. And we find little languages that tell us something we didn't know a language could do. So that's fascinating. What I'm more pessimistic about is the use of technology to keep the language actually living. The transmission of language is the oldest technology in the world. It's parents raising their children in the language. And if they're not doing that, all of the smartphone apps in the world won't really change that fact. You can't learn it without native speakers surrounding you with it, getting you comfortable, the turns of phrase, all that stuff. You can't replace that. So it sounds quite gloomy. You're saying that this is good for preservation, but only in a sort of, you know, frozen in amber form of the language. I mean, it is possible to revive a language. This has been done with Hebrew, which was basically not spoken as a living language. It was liturgically used and so forth, but wasn't spoken as a living language. And through an incredible story, it was revived around 100 years ago in what was then Mandatory Palestine now, uh, or Palestine, Mandatory Palestine now, Israel. This is being done with Cornish and Manx, both of which have revival movements. But they're in rich countries where people have the time and the resources, whereas a lot of the languages that are threatened are in poor countries where the governments either don't have the money, don't care, or are actively working to assimilate these small groups into the bigger language and get rid of their languages. And I think key is making the language cool, right? Like in New Zealand, Maori is going through this massive renaissance where the prime minister is speaking it, young people are loving it. And in Finland, there's this Sami dictionary, which basically tries to translate modern phrases into Sami. And what is Sami? Sami is an indigenous language spoken by um, Sami people, which is actually the European Union's only indigenous people. It's spoken in Northern Europe, in Finland, Lapland and Sweden. So what's being done to make that cool? And is that going to undergo a sort of Maori-like adoption by people who suddenly think it's cool? Well, I mean, you, you hope so, right? I had a look at the dictionary today and learned a few phrases. Obviously, apologies for the 300 people who speak Inari Sami. My pronunciation isn't excellent. But um, my name is Melissa, would be Munomali Melissa. Mu sotas leotili tieva angeriait. What does that mean? My hovercraft is full of eels, <laughs> uh, which is right. a, <laughs> it's a famous quote from uh, Monty Python's skit. And do the Sami have a lot of hovercrafts or eels? We don't know. 
Lane, we've talked about the role of technology. What about the role of globalization here, which is that on the one hand, it must be easier for speakers of a language around the world to keep that language alive through communication. But on the other hand, everyone wants to speak English or Mandarin. So which of those forces is stronger? Right. Um, you really see technology being used, for, for example, I just know Cornish Twitter a bit. Cornish is being revived somewhat, and there are at least a few uh, native speakers, people who have been raised since birth, and a few hundred fluent speakers and a wider community who really care. So they tweet and they Facebook each other in Cornish. I follow a few of them so I can verify they really do. And so that's a strength for technology. But the other effect, as you point out, is network effects. A language is valuable to the extent you can speak to people. And by far the most valuable language you can learn in the world is English because it gives you access not to just lots of people, but lots of people who matter. And so it's like the ultimate network effect, just like joining Facebook is useful because lots of people are on Facebook. And just like being on Twitter is useful because lots of people you know are on Twitter. English has got massive network effects. It gets stronger every single day, whereas the increase in sort of value for Cornish is going to be a lot slower. So what you got to hope is it has another kind of value. English obviously has a monetary value. Chinese might have a sort of geostrategic value. People want to get a, a sense of what's going on in China's mind. Cornish doesn't have that, so you have to give it a cultural value. And that's back to Melissa's cool. The question is whether that can overwhelm or outweigh the monetary or the other kinds of value that are easier to measure. Okay, so looking ahead, it looks as though cultural activities are a very important part of this. What sorts of things can we expect to see in the coming months and years? Hopefully, we'll see lots of English speakers getting excited about indigenous languages or, you know, in Finland, for example, Finnish people wanting to learn a bit of Sami. So more English speakers make an effort to learn Cornish in the way that Lane has. But Lane, you kind of collect languages. So, I mean, you're like a walking language preservation machine yourself. And not everyone is like you. So how do you think this is going to play out? Right. The, the, uh, probably a necessary but not sufficient condition is this consciousness raising. The, the year of indigenous languages that we started with, the music festivals, the politicians using a few phrases in the language. But that's not a living language. That's sort of tokenism in a way. I don't want to, I don't want to say that's negative. I think it is necessary, but it's not sufficient. The consciousness raising needs to lead to a change in attitudes where governments and schools in particular and parents ultimately are raising their children in these languages. And if that transmission belt is broken, no amount of consciousness raising will be enough. It's good, but it's just not enough. I think we're getting there. The consciousness is rising about this. And so that's one reason to be optimistic. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank, Thank you. you. That's all for this edition of The World Ahead. If you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist.